Welcome back to the Big Sparkcast, the podcast where we have big conversations that develop new perspectives, spark curiosity and drive change in your worlds. In today's episode, I am delighted to be sitting down with Asif Saleh. Asif is the executive director of BRAC. BRAC is an international development organization based in Bangladesh and is the largest non-governmental development organization in the world. BRAC states that it employs over 90,000 people, roughly 70% of whom are women, and reaches more than 126 million people with its services. Asif brings a multi-sectoral experience in senior leadership roles in business, public, and non-governmental arenas with a proven track record of effectively managing development programming, operational and financial sustainability, and building effective partnerships. He is an active member in a range of international alliances including Millions Learning International Advisory Group, Brookings Institute and Innovation Edge. Asif also chairs Brack IT Services Limited, co-chairs Bracknet and is on the board of Brack Bank and Idotco Bangladesh Limited. Asif is also a board member of multiple not-for-profits including the Institute of Informatics and Development and Maya. the question that's uppermost in my mind because it always strikes me when i talk to you is that we speak a lot about purpose and and what drives us so asif tell me a little bit about your journey and your purpose what led you to this very very critical leadership role that you're currently in things just lead to things and 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 then as steve jobs said that then you connect back the dots and you you start to see that it all kind of adds up and that's that's exactly what happened to my life as well so there was no big plan that i was going to be working in a in a sector in a, one of the largest not for profit organizations it just happened so in such an organic accidental way that i i just also i mean pinch myself as well that um, whether it's true or not because because i mean i kind of started and as a very sort of i would say the typical south asian career track <laughs> uh, and and because which is very risk averse essentially you understand and you know your parents uh have high expectation that you are going to be a doctor or an engineer when you go abroad and then have a stable job and and that's what i was doing i i kind of grew up in bangladesh and then I was uh, lucky to be a pro, uh, go for my undergrad uh, to the US and then I actually wanted to be a journalist myself but then after the first year then my dad got really ill uh, he was diagnosed with cancer and uh, so he was kind of in his deathbed but he miraculously survived but at that point I was I got a very clear sign that okay now I can't muck around <laughs> I have to fend for myself and I had So I had three jobs, and I, while I was studying and to earn my intuition and everything, so it was it was pretty hard. And at that time, I knew that I also had to keep good grades. So I picked a major which can which is going to guarantee my job, which was computer science. And essentially, I did line up about four different jobs in all very good companies, right? Even before I graduated. But then my journey for the quote unquote American dream started, right? So you got to get into that track where. you know you start working and you were like okay so let me get my green card let me get my first house let my have a baby and mm-hmm. before you know it you know you're inter- entangled in this whole thing and then you're not going to be able to come out of it mm-hmm. and that's what i was doing i was working at goldman sachs uh, in new york my core thing was that yeah i was working with technology but i wanted to solve problems with technology right. so whether it's financial problem or uh, other business problems but I wanted to work in a business organization and that's kind of led me to uh led me to Goldman and and then uh, I think but there was always that hunger and craving that I wanted to do something which was the food for the soul and that's essentially led me to something which is accidentally happened which is I really kind of followed Bangladesh and that's where my home uh, is and I ended up finding a news of this journalist who happened to be like beaten up by a local uh, member of the parliament and he was beaten so bad because of his writing that you know his both of his hands were almost at the verge of permanent damage unless he got some reconstructive surgery which required a lot of money 
and he didn't have the money. So I actually just in a one Sunday morning, uh, I, I just put together a website with all his information and I connected with the local uh, charitable organization who agreed to accept the checks written on behalf of them and started a fundraiser. And uh, within three weeks, I mean, I raised uh, uh, almost like 60% of the money that he required, about $25,000. And through that process, it just gave me this in like hope. And then people who kind of mobilized with me, they were like, we should keep this going because there are always issues like this coming up. And that was very, very empowering. And then we started an internet-based organization uh, focusing on human rights uh, survivors uh, to re- rehabilitate them. And that was called Drishtipat or Take Notice. And, and then that took its own life. And then very soon I found that there were different arms of the organization. There was an internet blog, which was very popular. There was a writer's collective. There was a creative collective. There were six chapters in three different countries. I was raising money, pet projects. A lot of young diaspora got involved. And these are, this was in 2001, very early days of the dot-com era. There was no social media. So, so it was very, very empowering. And, and it helped me reconnect back to Bangladesh. And uh, again, I was right. going back a lot to the point that I, I really started kind of reevaluating my goals and then what I really wanted to do with the rest of my life. But by then, I, was, I already worked for Goldman for about 12 years in New York and London. And clearly, I was kind of deviating towards the social work. So I decided to uh, take a leap of faith. I mean, I, I moved back to Bangladesh in 2000, end of 2009, started this small organization which was going to work on economic well-being for small entrepreneurs. And uh, there were three of us who came back from the UK and US. And then, then we started this. And then I was traveling around the country for about a year working with small entrepreneurs. And that kind of was my introduction to the Bangladesh, reintroduction to Bangladesh, and again, uh, to this sector as a whole. That initiative had mixed success, uh, uh, but I realized that it was going to take a long time for it to actually start to give me enough money to pay myself. So then I parked it, and then I went back to paid employment. I worked, started working at a for UNDP for a project which was based at the Prime Minister's office in Bangladesh. It was supporting digital uh, Bangladesh initiative. Again, it connect back the dots. My technology background uh, really helped here. And, and I wanted to work in development. So this technology development background really sort of was the great, perfect, perfect suit, uh, match. Uh, so I did that for about a year and a half. And then uh, the founder of Rack called me up and then basically offered me a position. And then he basically said that you really, really want to understand development. You can't really work on the policy. You really got to get your hands dirty and, and BRAC will give you the space. So I joined BRAC in 2011 and then then the rest is history. I mean, I, I became the CEO of BRAC in Bangladesh in, in 2019. So I've been with the organization for almost uh, 11 and a half years now. Yeah. What a fascinating journey, Asif. It's almost hard to believe that you didn't have a plan. You know, <laughs> everything seems to seems to have fallen in place at the at the right time, including opportunities to learn and reevaluate and and reframe. I laughed a little in the background, of course, when you said, you know, parents, expectation of South Asian yes. parents. I know exactly <laughs> because I work in your sector as well, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of my family probably don't think I have a serious job. You know, <laughs> they think one day one day I'll I'll do. But it's interesting, Asif, there were two things that just struck me very clearly from your story around your purpose, you know, what what drove you. One is that desire to solve complex problems, which has been innate in you. And I know that, you know, you love talking about that. The other is Bangladesh, you know, your deep sort of sense of commitment, love, affection for Bangladesh. Let's talk about the second one first, and then we'll come back to solving complex problems. And this is something I too have been on a journey of discovering Bangladesh with you and everyone else I've had the privilege of working with. It's really interesting, isn't it, Asif? The statistics on Bangladesh are so staggering. You know, since its founding in 71, it's emerged from overwhelming poverty to be proclaimed in 2020 as a model for poverty reduction. It's achieved the highest cumulative GDP growth globally from 2010 to 2020 and is now on course to become a developed country by 2041. So in a way, the Bangladesh paradox has been researched well and the role of non-governmental organizations like BRAC in this progress is incredibly powerful. 
But what I think sometimes I say, and especially when I talk to you, I learn so much about this. What I think is not researched is what is it about the approach of organizations like BRAC that has been so successful? So what can the world learn from Bangladesh? You know, I know it's such a big question, but absolutely, uh, I mean, I'm glad. I'm so glad you asked this because because I think I think there is that easier narrative of oh the NGOs did this, the Bangladesh government did this, but I don't think it's not as simple as that. It's not black and white. I mean, it's a combination. But but I I do really think you know having also returned back to Bangladesh and spent the last twelve years, I, I and I travel all around the Bangladesh still is at the center of it is the people of Bangladesh. I mean, there's an enormous amount of sort of resilience and then fighting against all odds. And if you go there now, you cannot tell that too, just like we were, we are coming off COVID. I mean, they're like ready to charge and they're like going all at it. No trauma kind of sets them back. I mean, it's just amazing. And so here you have a country which everybody had written off after it got liberated. You know, it's a, size of New York State with the population, which is half of U.S., very under-resourced. Um, how Henry Kissinger said, you know, it's a basket case or in a bottomless basket case. And so that means that, you know, you just give aid to it and nothing happens. That was the interpretation. So there's no future, no hope. I mean, it, it single-handedly did it because, I mean, of... Um, turned around all of these indicators that you mentioned. It is because also I think there there is this unique element of how, how people kind of fought against it, uh, fought against all, all the odds. So at least from my vantage point, uh, organizations like Bragg, what Bragg did from early stage that, again, going back to your first point, it, it really solved social problems and people's problems, essentially. And it became a very a problem-solving organization, essentially centering their, all their solution around people and, and building their capacity. So they're like, okay, so we want to listen to them first, what their problem is. And very soon, like we, we started as a relief organization, then became a, after a few months, uh, people were like, okay, I want long-term livelihood. What can be done? So let's discuss, let's talk, let's listen to them. What do you, what, what are the things that you need? You know, that led to starting with the financial inclusion work, the microfinance work, then that led to kind of supporting them with livelihoods. But again, these were never, ever charity. These were like very much around okay, long-term development. So, so it's about changing behaviors, giving them the right advice, giving them the right input, and the giving them sort of access to both market input and all the essential things that they would need to kind of turn their life around and in- increase their income. And through this process, you know, over time, again, Brack also did not plan to become such a large organization. It happened because it was, well, once it started solving one problem, then it saw that there are two other problems need to be solved in order to get that impact that we wanted to get. So, you know, you start with uh, microfinance, then you realize that the whole goal of microfinance is that so that they do income generating activities and they they increase their income. But then say, what what do they do? In the same village, they bought a lot of, they bought cows uh, that produces milk for them and they sell their milk. And then you only have a very limited market within a village i mean how much milk can you consume within a given village so they needed access to a broader market so that required us to kind of uh, set up that entire chain to connect these milk producers to the urban market but then we said that okay so how do you increase the milk production of these individual cows so bring in artificial insemination improve the quality of the breed so we generated artificial insemination, the knowledge transfer, the Siemens that came in. And then we said, okay, these services actually need to be provided by these people because we believe in their capacity. We train them. And then you have a cadre of female artificial insemination workers all around the country who generated income through providing a service which was not there. And then which if ineffectively improved the quality of the breed as a whole within the community, increased wow. the milk production. Then, you know, they needed better quality feed. We started this BRAC feed. They needed better quality seeds. So we brought, did the tech transfer. We did uh, started BRAC seeds. So 
So then we saw a lot of these women who were there working with their brilliant crafts, but they didn't have places to sell. Then we started our own uh, so that the idea was to increase, uh, give them the better quality input, design, so they can do this and then they can sell it in a very up market, right? So all of those were like kind of happened one after another. And then I think what back model shows that when you look at this base of the pyramid known as this BOP market, you know, but traditional, say, multinationals look at as additional market for them to sell their products, we actually kind of flipped it around. We looked at them as producers rather than consumers. So you know, how can they produce more stuff that can be sold in a market where there's untapped demand or latent demand? And then also in certain cases, we created the demand because we had fashion shows in five-star hotels uh, uh, for local products because there were no demand for local products because they were known as a poor quality and all that. So we kind of created an aspirational brand on our own so that more products get sold. And then, so yeah, now 65,000 artisans are connected with our own who actually make their living off from this. And so, so that itself, I think, basically is a fundamental thing. And if we believe in people's immense potential to grow and their capacity. Essentially, all our teachers are female teachers in our schools who were high school graduates, who were housewives. So we trained them, community healthcare workers. They were not doing anything within the community. We had to train them. And we, we bring them back again and again. And, and the whole idea of BRAC is that people are powerless because they're for their external situation, because they're poor, because they're social structure, because they're women. And so how do you kind of give them the tools so that they themselves can change their lives? So so our, you know, if you look at our comms and other things, you will never see helpless people who need charity. It's a very much about hope, smile, that these people are ready to go out there and fight. If you can help support them to reduce some of these pain points or frictions, yeah. it's just going to be a bit easier, but they're going to do this anyway. <laughs> yeah. so, so I think that's essentially the, the, the idea behind. And so where we come in is that we kind of try to create these models. Like, for example, now it's sitting in 2022, there are very different sets of challenges, right? So, so we look at in Bangladesh, I and mean, we were just talking about this morning in a, in a meeting that women have come out in droves and one of the major success factors in Bangladesh, whether it's the garments factories, whether it's in other places, women who were not, didn't want to come out of their homes. And I think NGOs can take a lot of credit for this because they required household level interventions, their behavior change, convincing men and others that they, it's actually going to be a good thing. And also then women to be know about their rights and exercising those rights were very, very important. Then they came out, there were more girls in the schools than boys in Bangladesh. So all in all, all our mission achieved. But then sitting in 2022, there are different sets of problems. You can see, you were like 2010, women's participation at workforce was 36%. 2015, we saw it was going to go up. But it actually regressed when we asked them. There are like talked about violence uh, at workplace, sexual harassment, mobility at transportation. They talked about lack of childcare, all of these. And obviously, the core element is still patriarchy, which is very much prevalent across the society. So now the question is A, how do you solve these practical problems like childcare and other things? And B, also a root cause, which is patriarchy. So that requires a very different approach. But then again, the similar. Also, ethos, what we call them, the back to basics, is, is essentially that look at these problem-solving mechanisms also as a way to generate newer kinds of employment and entrepreneurship opportunities. So can you create sort of early childhood development-friendly daycare centers where women can work as daycare facilitator, uh, learning facilitator? So not only this is going to give them a space to work and earn a living, but at the same time, the early childhood-related uh, needs and daycare related needs is going to get solved and women actually will be able to be more comfortable going to work uh, by doing this so we're looking at this very very closely this is the thing i think i think the solutions actually are with people and solutions are with people who are very very close to the problem so that is essentially what we are trying to tell the development community more and more that you know you cannot just bring in or fly in solutions global south has a story to tell and then there should be a very different development approach and we should be 
asking more fundamental questions in development that all these money money and resources are getting spent going back to your original question how are they getting spent yeah. uh, and 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 devil lies in the details and and i think uh, bangladesh has a story to tell on that side it's fascinating asif i mean the more you explain that sort of you know that that model the more obviously it raises a lot of questions but there's one thing i would agree with you having had the privilege and the pleasure of spending so much time in bangladesh you know especially through the looking at it through the lens of brack hope and smile you know is something i recognize there's never that sense of you know we should give up and and so much warmth that that comes back but tell me uh, something asif what you've just described you know as the model as the approach that's been taken by brack and you've given a few examples where you've put people at the heart and it all comes back to that sort of internal stakeholder group can this model be applicable to the rest of the world or is it unique to bangladesh you know what would you say to you know to to our listeners yeah i mean i don't think it's unique to bangladesh i, I i've been to africa I've, i mean that some of the nature of the problems are very very similar across across the world i mean it just seems some problems are very very universal now the solution of course has to be very contextual that's a given but i think that this whole approach of kind of uh, the design of a of a solution listening to the people and 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 making people within the community a very central part where you actually embed them in the solution you build capacities so that the organization remains or not doesn't really matter because the capacity is built i mean right now if we get out of our programs in education our teachers are going to still teach whether it's a government school or their own school that's what happened we pulled out and they started their own schools in in some of the areas because their their capacity is built on community trust them so that's the thing so it doesn't so we ourselves should exit out exit out of some of these because we we have solved the problem and so let's look at a newer problem because it's not about just because often times i think you know some some folks in our sector becomes worried that oh we're going to be out of a job but that's never the case because there are always newer social within a given society there will be different types of social challenges that i think your dna organizational dna i think from what that's what we tell brag that you it, it should be like that you know are you looking at these emerging solutions problems and trying to figure out solutions to these so from that perspective i think the approach would work in other places as well and again the school model that i i explained the one room school model has we have taken that in afghanistan we have taken that in uganda we have taken that in south sudan but there are very subtle cultural nuances that was basically uh, put in place to tailor the afghan people which is much more conservative in africa you know we worked in very remote areas with various tribes which required you know a lot of different type of interesting pragmatic solutions that, that we had i mean when i went to south sudan i heard about the story of this tribe which never send their girls to school so the leader of the tribe basically we had to convince the sort of the leader of the tribe by basically saying that you know why don't you send your daughter once and then we will get somebody you trust within the community as a teacher and and then she will explain it to you and then that happened and then others actually did that as well so there there are these all these in you know in afghanistan we created this chaperon model where the eldest of the of the somebody in the community where everybody trust became a chaperon for these girls but they she was taking them to the school because because they were very conservative they didn't trust but the, this auntie was trusted by everybody. Yeah. So again, I mean these are there's different ways, but the other important point is that you cannot also just look at development as a 3-year or 5-year project. So. Yeah, so longevity. Yeah, I mean it's it's just is development is long-term development is about changing behaviors and it's about uh, making people understand internalize things. So so your depth of programming has to be much longer term and and I think the sort of in Bangladesh we have been working for 50 years we because there is that relationship with the community that it's it's so easier for us to do something because people just understand and trust the brand and the people there's this long term relationship so that is very important i mean otherwise people will trust you if you come in yeah. for 5 years and then your project money runs out and you move away 
looks like that it is about your old self preservation yeah. sorry for yeah. being harsh but yeah to yeah. me a lot of the development work seems like that because then people organizations leave and then communities kind of left behind then what do i do so this long term approach and thinking that a you need to build capacity b these will take time uh, and c depth rather than breadth i mean i think some of our organizations are too interested in having footprints quote unquote in 140 countries and but very thin footprints will so that's I, I mean for us i think we have decided that it's not going to be like a, that kind of thing where wherever we are we're going to be going deep long term but in a smaller number of countries no incredible absolutely incredible and i again having seen the the impact of the work that you all are doing on the ground not just in bangladesh but other parts of the world i can everything that you've said resonates but i love what you said which is sometimes the danger of the model in the development world is if we get out this will all fall apart that's that's completely the wrong starting point isn't it it's how do you build sustainability for the people that you're trying to trying to empower help or support as if you said something very interesting there's um, despite the the fact that you feel this model can be trans- transferred there's something quite special about bangladesh is there a is there a local expression in bangla that captures it i just wondered uh, you know is is there something that that you would say in bangla can be said about this model i'm sure there is but it just not, <laughs> nothing comes to my mind right now being a bangladeshi born organization working in bangladesh it has been a lot i would say going to be simpler than being a bangladeshi born organization working in uganda and and being able to do that same kind of transformational impact so that's why i think one of the thing is that what we are trying to do is that you know in where whichever country brac works in uh, the national capacity building of the staff is very very important at the same time so that the idea is that you know brac in uganda should be the strategy for brac in uganda should be determined by people in uganda should be driven by people in uganda so that is definitely that 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 aspiration it's going to be very localized very nationalized but the approach will be very similar that that's right. going to be the brac approach okay makes a lot of sense um, beautifully put you mentioned covid as you were explaining the approach to uh, solving problems as if has anything changed as a result of covid did you have to sort of reevaluate rethink reset i mean a lot of things changed during things changed during covid i mean we we had to completely pivot in a lot of different areas how we work how we deliver how quickly we have to mobilize all of that but i personally thought that amongst the sort of the greater sort of bigger space among leaders and around people in general you know everything that we talked about during that time oh we're not going to go back to the same old business as usual anymore i think i i am a bit disappointed on that space that you know people are really trying to get back to business as usual again because i think either their memory is too short term or they're uh, missed this so much but certain things obviously remains but but again i don't think uh, there has been a proper sort of you know you know how do we build back better how proper analysis of that you know what issues that were fundamentally problematic before covid got really magnified during covid and how do we fix that i think the urgency that was there even like one year ago i see that again getting lost into kind of firefighting because also one of the realities is uh, which is unfortunate is uh, is that we are moving one from one crisis to another right so on one hand you know this all daunting climate crisis which is there then then this obviously there this pandemic happened and then when we thought 2022 was going to be a slightly normal this ukraine war now we are facing this global recession that's going to be coming in this huge sort of challenges in the global supply chain in superinflation everywhere it's just moving from crisis to crisis has become the new normal in a way so essentially that also makes it difficult to plan and and figure out how do we work in a slightly different way uh, so that we the problems that got identified during covid we actually are able to fix some of those i mean healthcare for example i mean it's such a major i mean there's the inequity in the sector has magnified so much that we really need to work on the systems level to really look at 
you know, how do we kind of change this, right? So, because I mean, that essentially what pandemic has shown that that these kinds of health shocks, no matter how much progress you've made in eradicating poverty, what we have seen in Bangladesh just this takes one shock to bring people down back into below poverty line, right? And then recovering them. So, so essentially, I think that is one big learning that you really have to build in in your program design this whole resilience build. So whether it's uh, so you need to basically create plan B or, or how to figure out because there will be crisis, but it's just about how they how people can get the tools to kind of stand up again. As if you've built a beautiful segue for me to come in on on the heart of this podcast, which is, you know, it's called the Big Sparkcast, which is all about how do you have the conversations which are about the big issues, you know, they're outcome-driven conversations, which are a bit more transactional, but how do you have conversations which are about issues that really matter to people and which are difficult and where sometimes you can't walk away with clear outcomes. So just picking up on the how, how do you change systems? You know, how do you solve complex problems? What role do conversations play in your approach to solving problems? Because particularly I ask you this question because you are someone who's constantly needing to have difficult conversations, particularly with your stakeholders. You know, you're trying to constantly reconcile needing to serve local interests and balancing it against global resourcing decisions. Yeah, so the Global South just missed out on this conversation because A, they're not part of the conversation or B, they couldn't either articulate their own position strongly because there was not enough evidence, whatnot. But I think that's the point. I mean, we need to generate even research priorities are often thought about from the Global West perspective because that's where the research resource allocation is happening. We need to do more resource researchers in Bangladesh and other places where to find more contextual solutions, right? So it's not just the building of the capacity of the people, but it's also building the institutional capacity uh, of organizations in this uh, global south as a whole, because we look at the world in a very different way, because we kind of grew up or we kind of saw uh, face realities in a much more resource constrained way. That's why our thinking, our solutions, are very, very has to be very different. And and I think it's so important to look at also development in a very different way. I go back to the conversation piece again. And the fundamental to all of this is that conversation, uh, that research, research that coming, uh, whether there's a mask study that happened around hand washing, whether that can work as an alternative to lockdown. There wasn't any. But then that triggered, I, this was an article that I put up in blog piece with public health advocate Richard Cash. Uh, and I wrote, and then that also that triggered certain thinking as well, right? So then there was a Bangladeshi researcher in Yale University whose name was Mushfiq, Dr. Mushfiq Mubarak as well. So he was also kind of uh, looking for that kind of things. And so he convinced donors to do a big mask study in Bangladesh at that time. And then the biggest mask study happened in Bangladesh back uh, then the September of that year. And the results after six months were very, very convincing. And he not only focused on wearing of masks, but how you can make people change their behaviors about wearing masks, which we then implemented uh, at Bangladesh at scale when the Delta was a variant came right before that we were running against the clock. Uh, and so we, we did a massive rollout in, in the 35 high-risk districts. So, so again, again, uh, kind of having that Bangladeshi-American researcher kind of looking at it problem in a different way in that institution, kind of all kind of added up and connected, but it just when it go, goes back to that. And I said to him that, you know, this is something we should not do it on an ad hoc basis. There are bigger challenges coming up, but let's do this partnership, whether it's in climate change and other pieces, let's, let's join forces. But on one condition that it should not be just a Yale researchers who are benefiting out of this. Of course, as practitioners, I'm benefiting, but I need to actually build up capacity of our local researchers here so that they can do. We'll just use your brand name. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, absolutely. And sometimes you've got to. It's all about leverage, isn't it? It's not that people don't want to come to the table to have the conversation, but sometimes things stop them. You know, it's either they don't feel confident about the articulation. They just worry they they won't be heard. We did a whole research piece around what does it, 
take to have conversations with purpose. And the thing that struck me most from that research, you know, Asif, was withdrawal, where people actually withdraw, you know, from those absolute critical moments where they can come and have the conversation to shift something, they withdraw. And have you ever been in a situation where you look back and you think, oh, why did I withdraw? Or actually you consciously did not withdraw and you shared a fantastic example already. But what did it take for you to kind of really be present at the table and make your presence so that you didn't, you know, you didn't withdraw and you make your presence, made your presence felt in a way? People are uncomfortable with difficult conversation in general. It's much easier to have superficial conversation, which doesn't rock the boat. It's much less risky, right? So why do people withdraw? I think in some cases, if I think about my previous experiences, sometimes it's the lack of conviction. Uh, Sometimes it's also how uh, questioning in terms of how you would be taken because, you know, I was an immigrant for a long time myself, right? I mean, I always felt, whether it's in New York or London when I was there, that, you know, you always have to be more than equal just to be equal. That's a given, right? And, you know, you are constantly trying to prove yourself. So for us, I think in a way, this is the same thing that we are fighting against, that, you know, what you hear in conventional wisdom, what you hear in chatters on the coffee table is very different from what you're seeing on the ground. So then you're like, yeah, this is the first time I am getting the chair in this table to talk about it, should I rock the boat or should I just basically conform? I think it's much easier to conform unless you're like really have the conviction that you want to change the conversation. You know, I did this thing at the, when I was in Davos that I, I, I said that in the panel as well, there is a huge disconnect in terms of what's the conversation that is happening around climate and other things. And what we're seeing on the ground, you know, you guys are still talking about 1.5 degrees centigrade, keeping it there, doing this mitigation, this and that. It's almost like almost like this is that we are doing the fire drilling because anytime fire happens, we need to kind of uh, kind of engage. But the fire already has started. I mean, you need just need to come to the southern part of Bangladesh and see what the heat and the lack of water and lack of food because the, the, the crops are destroyed and, uh, by the salinity, uh, by the, the soil is destroyed by the salinity, that's already happening. So if you want to see the trailer of the movie, go there, because that's, gonna, that's coming everywhere, right? So it's going to come into the missile. There's going to be mass migration happening. So, so that urgency is missing because they're so, so far away from the, from the, far away from the problem. So I think that's, those are the things that I think, you know, people are, Often, I mean, I again, you know, if you look at me t- eight, ten years ago, uh, I probably would not have said that because I was just happy to be there, and I was just happy to be this being invited. And now I feel a bit more confident because I I've seen things up close. I see, I have a better idea about this global conversation and the global players. I think it's important that my access there warrants me that and inject a bit of a dose of reality in these conversations. As if I know you recently had to have a couple of difficult conversations with a couple of stakeholders because um, they were sort of (laughs) changing the game a little bit. Would you say at that time, because this is something we're working on in the background, would you say things like courage, you know, sense of responsibility and curiosity were the three things that helped you in having that difficult conversation, that, that sort of, you know, that real conversation with your stakeholders? I think those three things you mentioned is uh, is an essential leadership attribute for any leader. And I think the key thing about any leadership competency, the first thing I would say is the courage, that it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be saying things that other people, you don't have to be a people pleaser. You don't have to, you're not running for election, that you have to be a popular guy. You know, there will be... A, uh, things at some point you will say that it's not going to make most people happy. So I think uh, courage is the fundamental part of that. So whether it's uh, taking tough decisions, having uncomfortable conversations, or making tough choices, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a very important ingredient. And also courage to take risks as a whole. I think, you know, I mean, I think BRAC is where it is. One of the reasons is it has been incredibly 
entrepreneurial and risk-taking as an organization because of the courage of our founder, who were like, yeah, I mean, it may fail, but I will still take this risk because it's a risk worth, worth taking because it, it solves the problem. It's going to solve a problem of a segment that uh, nobody is actually challenging that those problems, right? So I think those are very, very important attributes from all aspects. Risk is is absolutely the right word because in a sense, you're always calibrating risk, isn't it? The risk of not doing something, and you gave the example of what, what the founder of Brack probably went through in his head at the time, versus sometimes as leaders, we are constantly balancing, aren't we, reputational risk? You know, what if I get it wrong? Where will that leave me in terms of my, my legacy and my reputation? But I think it's that courage to cut through that. Absolutely. This is something that he would he would say that, that if you want to do something, there would be plenty of people who will come to you and say that, give you 10 different reasons in terms of why you should not do it. But not many people will say that what is the risk of not doing it. And, and as a social entrepreneur, you must must take this because you're an entrepreneur for a reason, right? And again, you know, Brack faced a lot of criticism. We ran 100,000 schools. We, there were criticisms that, oh, you're abdicating the state out of the, their responsibility to educate the children. I mean, the truth of the matter is, yes, you can wait for the state to get their act together, a state which is very resource constrained. But then it will happen 25 years later. But what's going to happen to these generation of children who's going to be not getting the education for this next 25 years. So should we just wait for the state to get their act together or should we do yeah. something about yeah. it, right? So I think that's, those are the, those are, I think, the essential, this uh, element of courage and the risk-taking, I think, which is, which is very important. As if before we bring this to a close, I'm very conscious of time. Can I bring you back to trust? Because you said that and you said you wanted to come back to it. Has there been a moment where you had to consciously do something which was for you was a big deal in your head, you know, you know, something that you didn't feel comfortable doing. You didn't want to go there. You took yourself there simply because you had to build trust. And particularly in the context of working with stakeholders. I mean, is that a, is that your reality? Yes. And more and more becoming a reality uh, to work with a really diverse set of stakeholders, because, because I, I think, you know, for us, I mean, the, uh, there's no dearth of big problems to solve, but there are dearth of resources. So essentially you have to do more with less. And that requires you to work a lot more with partnerships. I mean, I gave you the examples of Brack running on uh, six, six thousands of schools. We ran 64,000 schools at one point. One of the reasons we had resources for that, we don't have the resources. So we have to look at work with partners. We have to work with different sectors altogether. So for me, in any given day, the diversity of the people I work with, in part private sector, I work with UN, I work with other NGOs, I work with INGOs, I work with government and, and the governments, and, and, and there are very different incentive mechanisms, different types of things. But we are kind of in the first phase of designing a new initiative, which is very different, unlike any others. And going back to that uh, message from Paul Pullman about getting 30 people together, right? So we are working on this tackling issue of patriarchy. And we said that let's really get the leaders on different sectors, you know, beyond the usual suspects. You don't want to just get the activists, just the social sector leaders, but let's get the corporate leaders. Let's get the policymakers. Let's get the cultural leaders. Let's get the writers, the artists, the celebrities, the players who have influences within the larger society. Let's get them in one room and let's really work with them so that they internalize and they become advocate. And then they make changes in their own sphere. And then only we're going to see the starting point of the tipping point of a larger movement around. Right? The first meeting happened today with 25 people. And I was exactly that saying that, that we, you know, as soon as you see me, I'm sure you're coming up with all these different kinds of labels about me and the organization I work with. As soon as I see about some of these other players, uh, other other people in there, you're coming up with things that that is the background music behind uh, uh, your uh, uh, movie that is playing. But then let's break out from that. Let's figure out the lowest common denominator. This is like we're all in it because we want to fight the patriarchy together. And 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 
You just have that trust beyond, we will have lots of political differences and this and that, but that this is one area where we are all going to be a common ally. And then we're going to inform each other when we do something in our own sphere so that it just supports each other. So, so yeah, it's, it will require trust building over time. It will require that uh, kind of opening up of the mind beyond this baggage and other, uh, other association that people come up with, which has become much more difficult in the age of social media because, you know, your worldview has become dictated by your social media feed. Uh, it's not based on conversation. So people are so just sending out messages and looking at feeds and just making judgments uh, about people. And that's got to change. And that can only change through conversation, trust building, and, and really like creating that sense of camaraderie, particularly if you're working on purpose and common social causes. Absolutely. As ever, Asif, on cue, you brought us back to where we started from, which was purpose. Just tell me a little bit, very quickly, a bit about, you know, you're so inspiring in your in your world. You know, I know, I, I mean, I'm inspired myself usually. I know people who say that to me all the time. What inspires you? What keeps you going? You know, what's the thing that you look for inspiration in? You know, is it something that you that you're reading, you read to keep going? Is there things you listen to? What is that part of you that makes you who you are, you know, and keeps <laughs> others going in return, in a way? I am somebody who has a lot of interest in different things. I'm a, I'm a news junkie. I really like culture, cultural stuff. I, I in a sense, whether it's poetry, music. I'm a trained musician myself. I, I do read but I can't read fiction anymore. I, I do a lot of nonfiction stuff. I, I'm a big fan of TED Talks. I listen. I have my TED Daily podcast every day. I listen to at least one. And the end of the day, the work that I do is, is I think, end of the day, uh, when I go to the field, and not when I'm sitting in my office, my biggest inspiration comes from the field. Because how little people get and how they try to change their lives with that little that they get. It just makes you so much more humble and so much willing to do a lot more uh, is the biggest inspiration. And, and, but, but, but also I think in a sense, you will agree that, you know, I mean, we are all also come with incredible privilege, right? So, so essentially I think one of the things is that how do we use this privilege to solve some of these problems? And for that, I think our, so the founder of Bragg, Sir Fazle Hassan Abed, was a massive inspiration because, you know, his life and also being able to work with him closely and hearing your thoughts. You know, he was somebody who probably could have been the sort of the richest person in Bangladesh because he, he was a very shrewd, uh, understood numbers, business very well. But he's also somebody who is a deep admirer of culture who could design the most socially sensitive program at the same time. And then at the same time, he was an incredible family man. Uh, he was there for people and he was changing people's lives and their future career tracks just by having one conversation with them. So all in all, I mean, he was just, just a massive inspiration. That, and I think that kind of the role one person can play in terms of creating a um, thousand flowers or blooming, having thousand flowers bloom. So, so I think, you know, see, um, there are many, many different factors, but, but in the end of the day, it's the why do we do what we do. And we, I, I think one of the biggest privileges is that I actually get paid for what I do because I would have actually done it even if I didn't get paid because it's such an incredible social gratification in terms of just being able to be there and, and such a such a huge with a huge platform being there with the people and 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 give more hope and and hope and smile to the world. I <laughs> said, what's the one thing? Just on that note, and I promise I'm going to sort of end with this. What's the one thing you wish you had known when you started out? Because what you're doing is something so many of us aspire to do. You know, the current generation, the next generation. And although you said in your, in your usual humble way that you didn't have a plan, but there's so much you've achieved. But what's the one thing you wish you'd known when you started out in this, in this world? There are a couple of things. I mean, one is that Again, going back to the upbringing, right? Again, I think I became my own person when I started challenging conformity. And for the longest time in my life, I, I wanted to conform. 
and and it just it just so happened that I bumped into things. And one thing I was, and you mentioned the word curiosity. That's one thing I was I was on everything. I was very curious. I always wanted to push a little bit without really consciously knowing that. Yeah, I wanted to create that website because I felt I could do it, and it just happened. I did that. Then I, when people came up to me, I, I encouraged them. I said, "Yeah, why not do it?" Like I was very enthusiastic. I was the connector uh, of people. So I think that curiosity is so important, and then the sort of being able to challenge conformism and being being okay to be comfortable in your own skin. Is, is very, very important. And I think at South Asians, our education systems and other things, I, 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 you, it always tells you to conform. You, you should not be... Uh, so I think that's something... Don't drop the boat. <laughs> don't drop the boat, yeah. And, 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 and I, I became happier as a person as, as soon as I started doing that. I became more comfortable. And then I was like, hey, it's okay. Yeah, you, you may make people uncomfortable. You make some unhappy people. But... But in the end, everybody comes around uh, because that authenticity is so important, whether it's in leadership or your relationship or friendship, is absolutely crucial, right? So, so that importance of authenticity, I think if somebody had told me in the very beginning, I would have been probably started a lot earlier. <laughs> no, I completely agree with you. There's a lot of resonance there. I mean, I, I have a similar reflection. You know, I wish I'd, I'd held on to what I you know, what at core I knew mm. was the right thing, but mm. I just didn't have the confidence yeah. at that time to hold on to it. No, absolutely. Look, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us an insight into your life, into the world of BRAC, and indeed the massive contribution that you're making, not just for Bangladesh, but for the rest of the world. And ultimately, hope and smile is what really is what really what this is about. So huge appreciation and huge admiration and gratitude for everything that you're doing and leading. Incredibly kind of you, Adir. But thank you for having me. And uh, there's a book coming out of on our founder. It's actually called uh, Hope Over Fate. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's going to come in in September, his biography. And absolutely, I think this is the fundamental crux to that. I, at the end of the day, we're all, particularly working in the sector that we are, we're all kind of faced with incredible challenges. So there's no alternative to being hopeful and optimistic. So we will come through. And then it's more important to have these conversations uh, so that more people know. And, uh, and thank you for making part of the conversation. Thank you so much, Asif. A very special thank you to Asif for taking the time to join us today. And a big thank you to all of you out there, our listeners. Don't forget to subscribe and we look forward to having you join us again very soon. 